There's been a lot of talk lately in the news and on social media about rules and regulations, whether masks should be a requirement, mandated, and all this talk about rules and regulations kind of got me thinking about these old, old rules in the Bible, the Ten Commandments. And so I thought it might be fun to explore the Ten Commandments and and maybe what they mean for us today, how they are still relevant for us today. So I'm excited to, to jump into this new kind of series in the podcast and talk about the first commandment today. So join us on the Methodical Methodist Podcast as we explore the Ten Commandments. Hello and welcome to the Methodical Methodist Podcast, a podcast where we talk about why the church is still relevant for us today as we explore themes connected to religion, politics, pop culture, faith, and yes, even the church. Together we can find out what it means to live into the mission of the church by making disciples. Now, let's get methodical. Hello everyone, I am your host, the Reverend Andrew Lay, and I'm excited to spend this time on the podcast today. If you like the show, I hope that you might take a minute to subscribe, rate, and write a review for the podcast. It helps to boost the show and make it to where more people can find it. You can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash methodicalpod, and you can find me on Instagram as well at methodicalpod. So be sure to check me out. In 2006, United States Representative Lynn Westmoreland did an interview with comedian Stephen Colbert on his show, The Colbert Report. The Georgia Republican was a co-sponsor of a bill that would require the Ten Commandments to be displayed in Congress. A few minutes into the interview, Colbert asks Westmoreland to name all of the Ten Commandments. And Westmoreland responds, Um, don't murder, don't lie, don't steal. Um, then after a brief pause, he says, I can't name them all. Colbert then abruptly ends the interview by saying, Congressman, thank you for taking time away from keeping the Sabbath holy to talk to me today. Westmoreland shakes hands with Colbert and says, Anytime, Stephen. For many, the Ten Commandments have become a politically charged symbol. People call for the Ten Commandments to be displayed in our courthouses, public schools, and various types of government buildings. And it's ironic that so many people argue for the Ten Commandments to be publicly displayed, but when asked to recite them all from memory, most people are unable to do so. It seems that people have become more focused on displaying the Ten Commandments instead of actually living them out. I'm not advocating that the Ten Commandments should be displayed on every government building in our country. Instead, I would rather see the Ten Commandments displayed in our hearts and minds. I would rather see them lived out through our actions. Even though these ancient commands were given thousands of years ago, I believe that they still have something important and relevant for us today. The Ten Commandments have a very interesting and complex genesis. The book of Exodus tells the story about how the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. The Pharaoh had grown fearful of how numerous and powerful the Hebrew people had become. Consequently, he makes a decree to his people saying, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, 
but you shall let every girl live. As a result, the Hebrew people are forced to throw their own male children into the Nile River. There is one Levite couple in particular, a man from the house of Levi and a Levite woman, who fall in love and get married. Much to their dismay, the woman becomes pregnant. Imagine their horror when they give birth and realize that their newborn baby is in fact a boy. Imagine that they had spent the last nine months on edge worrying about this possibility. They knew that this might happen, but now they are confronted with a difficult situation. What will they do? Three months go by, and for three months the mother and father are able to hold and care for their baby. For three months they are able to sing their son lullabies and rock their baby to sleep. For three months they hide their child from the outside world. And after three months, the time comes when they can no longer keep their baby a secret. Out of papyrus, tar, and pitch, the mother fashions a seaworthy vessel for her child and places him in the rushing waters of the Nile River. The stream of water swiftly carries the child to none other than Pharaoh's own daughter. She spots the basket and a maid draws the child out of the water, and therefore Pharaoh's daughter decides to raise this child as her own, and she gives him the name Moses. Under the threat of death and destruction, the baby Moses is thrown into the water, but that water carries him to safety. Moses had a death sentence, but the water carried him to new life. Moses grows up in Egypt, but one day he comes across an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And for fear of being found out, Moses ends up fleeing from Pharaoh and traveling to the land of Midian. In Midian, Moses marries Zipporah, and she gives birth to a son whom they name Gershom. Then one day, while Moses is keeping his father-in-law's Jethro's flock, he takes the sheep beyond the wilderness to Horeb, the mountain of God. And suddenly, out of a burning bush, God calls Moses to deliver God's people out of slavery, saying, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And through this call, And with the help of ten plagues that God sent to the land of Egypt, Moses leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And the Egyptian soldiers pursue the Israelites to the bank of the Red Sea. And there, Moses lifts his staff, and God parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites are able to cross on dry land. The Israelites worship God and celebrate their newfound freedom. They followed Moses as he led them on a journey to Mount Sinai. And for 11 months, the Israelites camped at the foot of Mount Sinai as Moses would repeatedly climb the mountain in order to meet with God. And it was there on the mountain peak where Moses received 
the Ten Commandments. Moses summoned the Israelites to hear God's commandment on the morning of the third day at Mount Sinai. Booms of thunder, flashes of lightning, and a cloud of smoke filled up the sky. A trumpet resounded throughout the Israelites' camp, and it was so loud that all the people trembled. Then the Lord descended upon the mountain in fire, and the whole mountain was wrapped in smoke and shook violently. Moses then carefully presents these commandments to the people of Israel by saying, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances that I am addressing to you today, you shall learn them and observe them diligently. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or male or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. God begins the Ten Commandments saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Moses had met with God face to face, and this is what the Lord had said to him. I am the Lord your God. And one can think about Moses' first encounter with God in the mysterious burning bush. God's voice rose from that bush saying, I am who I am. This is the title for God which Moses used to assure Israel and challenge Pharaoh. And make no mistake about it, when God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. When God said that, he is calling on the Israelites to remember what God had done for them. God wants them to remember when God brought them out of Egypt and when God parted the Red Sea and allowed them to pass on dry land. God wants them to remember how God provided manna for them in the wilderness. God wants them to remember how God has continually taken care of them. Therefore, God lays claim to the people of Israel. In a pilot episode of The West Wing, 
Some of the White House staffers are debating with a group of evangelical Christians in the mural room of the White House. One of the Christians named John Van Dyke says, I'd like to discuss why we hear so much talk about the First Amendment coming out of this building, but no talk at all about the First Commandment. He then goes on to say, The First Commandment says, Honor thy father. Toby Ziegler, the White House communications director and a devout Jew, responds, No, it doesn't. Honor thy father is the Third Commandment. Van Dyke says, then what is the first commandment? Suddenly, the President of the United States, Jed Bartlett, bursts into the room with a booming voice and says, I am the Lord your God. Thou shalt worship no other God before me. Boy, those were the days, huh? These first words spoken by the President of the United States in the show of the West Wing are the words of the very first commandment. Just like the president is portraying his own authority in the mural room, God is portraying God's own authority in this first commandment. It seems like this first commandment is setting the stage that is to follow. This first commandment acts as an important preface for all of the commandments that follow. I'm sure it must have been overwhelming for the Israelites to hear these rules and restrictions that God had commanded them to obey. We are often put off by the Ten Commandments, and I can understand why. The Ten Commandments are a bunch of thou shalt not statements. Nobody wants to hear a list of things they're not allowed to do. Most people don't like being told no. There is, however, another way to look at this. These rules were given to God's people because God loves us and cares for us. God had freed the Israelites from slavery, and God wanted to provide some rules and guidelines for them and how they should live their lives. Giving the Ten Commandments was God's way of orienting them and teaching them what it means to live in communion with God and with each other. The Ten Commandments offer a guide for how we live our lives and how we relate to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. These ten rules that help the ancient Israelites orient their lives are still relevant for us today as we strive to orient our lives as well. And I would argue that these rules do not hinder us from living full lives. Instead, these rules provide some important guidelines as we seek to live the lives that God has called us to live. In this first commandment, God speaks as a parent speaks to their children. God gets straight to the point and lays down the law by essentially saying, I am the Lord your God, whether you like it or not. In this phrase, God is establishing a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. God established this with Moses when God said, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. In this first commandment, God is laying claim to our lives. God has established this covenantal relationship with God's people, and God wants to be the one and only God in the hearts and minds of the Israelites. After all, God is a consuming fire. A jealous God. God doesn't have the patience nor the inclination to entertain the idea of other gods. Israel was frequently tempted with the idea of other gods like Baal, Marduk, and Asherah. Many of us are probably more familiar with the various Greek gods. Each of the Greek gods offered something different. Zeus was the god of the sky and thunder. Hades was the god of the underworld. Poseidon was the god of the sea, earthquakes, and horses. But the God of Israel demands complete and total devotion. 
God is a jealous God, and God's jealousy is actually a product of God's love for us. In the book of Judges, chapter 6, Gideon is called by God to pull down the altar and the sacred pole of the false god Baal. The only problem is that the altar was actually built by Gideon's own father, Joash. So Gideon goes in the cover of night, and he destroys the altar of Baal. Then Gideon builds an altar to the God of Israel in the exact same spot where the altar of Baal had stood. The next morning, the townspeople wake up and they see that Baal's altar has been demolished and a new altar has been built in its place. They are completely outraged. Then they find out that Joash's son, Gideon, is a culprit. Gideon is the one to blame. So they go to Joash and they say, "'Bring out your son so that he may die.'" For he has pulled down the altar of Baal and cut down the sacred pole beside it. But Joash defends his son, and he replies to the hostile crowd around him, saying, Will you contend for Baal, or will you defend his cause? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been pulled down. Gideon's father Joash abandons his allegiance to the god of Baal, and he defends his son Gideon. There are false gods all around us that threaten to take our time, our devotion, our priority. We become like what we worship. And sometimes we say we worship God, but our actions prove otherwise. So we can ask the questions, what are your other gods? Is your god power? Are you solely focused on chasing your career, or is your God money? Years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. preached a sermon entitled, The False God of Money. In his sermon, he says, The temptation to worship this money God is one that faces us all. To resist it, we need to take high ground. This God of money is forever standing before us, saying, Worship me. I'll be your God. I'll teach you how to get rich quick. I'll teach you the shrewd methods of exploitation. I'll show you how to get a Cadillac car or a Buick convertible with little effort. Just worship me. Oh, how many have responded to the call of this God of money? Millions today are dutifully worshiping at the shrine of the God of money. Many of us fall into this trap of worshiping the false God of money, but this first commandment requires complete and total trust and commitment. To obey the first commandment is to follow the Lord our God. All other commandments follow the first one. I'm reminded of the old tradition of the Shema. The Shema is a prayer that the Jewish people recite every morning and evening. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This prayer reminds us that there is one true God, and we are called to give our complete and total devotion to God. We're called to love God with everything in us. As the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther once said, To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. To have a God does not mean to grasp him with your fingers, or to put him in a purse, or to shut him up in a box. Rather, you lay hold of God when you... Your heart grasps him and clings to him. God offers us the Ten Commandments as a way to enter into our lives and guide us as we seek to live in communion with God and with others. God loves and cares for us so much 
that God sent Jesus down in the flesh to be among us. And we can find comfort knowing that Jesus is here beside us and Jesus will never leave us. And so we can see how the Ten Commandments, this first one in particular, paves the way for us to learn how to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Methodical Methodist Podcast. If you have enjoyed this show, I hope you might consider heading on over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show. It is very much appreciated. And until next time, stay methodical.